0: We need to build societies that are not founded on the violent presuppositions of liberalism, but on the peace of Christ. To do this, we need to acquire a fresh, spiritual way of thinking beyond the boring categories that modernity has to offer. Catholic social teaching is this fresh way of thinking. I'm Jacob Fareed-Imam, from Post-Liberal Thought, this is The Catholic Social Difference with Andrew Willard Jones. What All right, Andrew, we saw last time the development from the fall once the natural law was ended prematurely in the sense that the natural law, the orientations in man's hearts to the proper ends were usurped. There was still this, this strong movement to do certain things. But the end, the true end, adoration of God was replaced with man. Adam, in his original state, served in the roles of prophet, priest, and king, as we discussed. But these terms are nowhere found in the early stages of Genesis and anywhere else other than Egypt. The first times we have them recorded is in the pagan Near East right mesopotamia
1: yeah the writing of genesis is an attempt to explain to people well after the fall what was happening in the beginning right and so you have to use the language of the analogies the human law of the later people in order to explain the beginning and because the natural law and therefore the human law that flows from it is not entirely effaced it's not gone That language is capable of expressing something of the reality, right? right? Because when they say priest, the priests, even in the pagan nations, are a sort of perverted... Analog to Adam, right? That that is humanity grasping after its function, its its commission, its task. The whole construction of the temple societies are, mm-hmm. is an obvious misdirection of the construction of the cosmos as a temple. Could you describe
0: one of these cities for
1: us? The example I've given in the past is Rome, which is not in the the biblical Near East, but Rome. I think in a lot of ways is the culmination of the nations, right? This right. is this is the reason why. Christ comes at the time when you have Caesar Augustus, I mean, because this is the culmination of the fall, basically, right. the establishment right. of the Roman Empire is, well, is sort of as fallen as we get. But Rome itself is a temple, the city, the marketplace is holy, the senate is an altar where they offer sacrifice before they debate or talk, uh, govern, basically. The whole military regime of Rome revolves around sacrifice and sort of uh, wizardry, right? Like augers, or like reading the entrails of animals. And, right, right, right. I mean, the, the, yeah. whole, the whole social order is indistinguishable from a temple regime. The society itself functions as a liturgical act, right? But it's focused upon the emperor himself, ultimately. I mean, mm-hmm. there's many gods, but the emperor is the one
0: universal god. Right. Jupiter
1: as he calls himself.
0: Even when the temple is ultimately destroyed in Mm -hmm. 70 AD, the Romans erected a temple to Jupiter on that spot. Exactly, right.
1: right. And this makes perfect sense, right? Because it's the unifying power, the one God among the other gods, and the the emperor is sort of channeling of Jupiter. Right.
0: Wow. No, all the nations are doing this. Right. uh, Even the Greek policies, but arguably fulfilled or, or maximized in the Roman site, What's happening in Israel at this time? We've talked about it a little bit with the deliverance of the law, but can we talk now about Christ coming to fulfill that law? What does Christ say? Do not think that I have
1: come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. People throw this around, and it's worth stopping to really think about what this means. I mean, what does he say? The law will never pass away. And those who teach the law, he says, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this seems very odd, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't follow the law. Right, like, well, are we following Deuter- the laws of Deuteronomy? So what laws right. are he talking about? Is he speaking of the Mosaic law here? Um, in a sense, right? Because yeah. remember, we talked about how the Mosaic law is a instantiation of the eternal law. So a just human law is a mediation A human mediation of the natural law, which is a participation, human participation in the eternal law, which is the very mind of God. I mean, I I remember being struck by the profundity of this when it occurred to me that Christ is still speaking a human language. Mm -hmm. He's born in a particular time and place in a culture, in a world. And yet, because whomever he's speaking to, he knows better than they know themselves. So in the same sort of way, when we think about the way God gives Israel a law that's perfect for them because he understands them. When Christ speaks to people, he understands them. So he says exactly the way to instantiate the law. He says exactly what they need to hear. They, them, that person.
0: Right, so I think about him going out in the grain field and picking grain with his disciples and the Pharisees, getting all upset with them because he's breaking the law, not realizing that- He's the law. He is the (laughs) law. (laughs)
1: Right. That, that was, th- those rule; those <laughs> laws are ways of living the law.
0: They are not the law itself. So he came to fulfill the law, but really he could do no other than to fulfill the law. Right. By, Everything being he, uh, by being himself.
1: So that's one way in which the law is fulfilled in Christ. But there's this other very closely related way, which is that he says things like, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment, right? And then again, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so what is he doing? She's connecting the relative commands of the human law to the actual law. So it's not don't commit adultery. Don't commit this particular crime that was written down in a proposition, it's not to want to commit the crime. Right. Going deeper. Right? So so in a sense here, then what he's saying, I think in a real sense, is that to hate is more properly to murder than to kill, in a sense. Mm. Like mm-hmm. the hatred that motivates the murder yeah. is the crime. The, the
0: external is secondary to the internal. Or, or that's the very place where you're separated from the natural law. That's the first that's place. It. That's it. Once you murder, you're... Far down the line. that's That
1: follows from, yeah. right? Yep. So he's deepening the law. He's saying it's not enough to just chew with your mouth closed. That's the law. That's mm-hmm. the external law. Mm-hmm. Chew with your mouth closed. You have to respect your parents. Then chewing with your mouth closed becomes obeying the law. Otherwise, it's not really obeying the law, right? Otherwise, it's obeying the law to the stimulant of sin we talked about the other day. Otherwise, right. it's fearing punishment. Right. Otherwise, obeying the law is still
0: self-interested. It's still about you. Right. And so right. this is, to go back to the example of when Christ replies to the Pharisees, do you not know that the Sabbath was made for man? Right. It's again, he goes right back to the heart of the matter. Why, why, why? He's asking, yeah. what is the purpose, the true teleology of each of these commands? What St. Thomas says
1: to us is that the law is fulfilled, not in its mere performance, but he says that it has to be performed in a certain way. So the old law is a specification of the natural law. We have the Ten Commandments, for example. They're the basic statements of the natural moral law. What flow from them are the judicial and ceremonial precepts, how to love your neighbor, how to worship God, how Mm. to love God, which are particular applications of this law, particular external ways of living it. So to obey that law outwardly, Thomas explains, is to act as if you are moral. It's performing the acts of virtue. But that's not the same thing as having virtue. You can perform the acts of virtue in a vicious way. People do it all the time, like misers who are, what do we say, prudent with their expenditures, for example. It might seem to be an act of virtue, the prudence, but it is in fact a vice, right? right? They're actually hoarding for their own gain. Right. So someone who actually has virtue then obeys the law, not because he's told to, right? But because he's the type of person who both knows what is right, so he's been instructed by the law intellectually, and desires to do what it says, so his will is also healed. This is the fulfillment of the law, right, to be a virtuous person, to know the truth and desire the good. So this is when the law is written on the heart. Yeah, right. And the way Thomas describes it is that it's like a second nature virtue. So it's a a healing of human nature, Mm -hmm. which acts like a second nature. Right? Wow. you become a virtuous person now your inclinations are properly directed so virtuous men then perform the acts of virtue so perform or, or obey the law as if it was natural to them to do so so this is there's another way of putting this would be to it's to internalize the law right there's this idea this very very unfortunate modern idea of christianity and of christ as being apolitical Oh, man, that's not what's happening here, is it? Yeah. No. (laughs) No, I mean, it's like all you have to do is read the Bible, right? It's like like what the Bible is about is how the falling away from the divine plan and from God creates slavery and tyranny. And then what Christ comes to do is to reestablish the kingdom of
0: God and freedom. I mean, I know when I converted, the first things that I was— hearing was was this line of christ was apolitical you can be a christian in any political form there is which is true you, sort of it's yeah. true You're well, not you can able... be a
1: christian subject to a, a regime well that's what
0: i'm trying to get at yeah it's just yeah. not your regime but that then breeds a passivity or i think what i heard most of the time was that it was then unnecessary to even just to desire a more christian regime well it's as if the nations are okay
1: and like, oh yeah, well that's just the way the world is. But you know, Jesus says that He's not like them, so He's different, and He teaches this different law. But their law is fine, and we should just leave it alone, as long as we
0: outlaw. And it's abortion. like, no, you don't, no, no, no.
1: The law that Christ teaches is the fulfillment of law, and so it's the undoing of the false laws.
0: Right. It doesn't leave them alone; it destroys them. And You're talking a little bit more than just abolishing the laws that allow for no fault divorce and. Abortion. (laughs) No, yeah, Yeah. no. Any legal
1: regime, at this point it's pseudo-legal, that isn't— Pseudo-legal because it doesn't have a perfect correspondence to the natural law. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That that is not oriented towards the original commission of man, which is the original fulfillment of man's end, which is to be with God. Mm -hmm. Any legal regime, so-called legal regime, that isn't leading man and facilitating that action is not to be left alone. That is exactly what we're saved from, right? That is the result of
0: the fall. Right. So what I heard, what I guess you heard probably for a long time growing up, was that because Christ internalized the law, you could lead your Christian life anywhere. And the only thing that one needed to focus on was that internal relationship with God. Of course, being virtuous, being kind to your neighbors. But then also then kind of quickly following from that, We heard of Caesar's coin and that question of, do you render taxes unto Caesar? Because in that moment, when Christ replies, render the God was God's into Caesar's, what is Caesar's, it seems like he's making that split, that bifurcation in the ways in which we live. I don't understand that
1: interpretation. I don't want to be flippant or disrespectful to the people who read it this way, but just on the face of it, what exactly isn't God's? (laughs) I mean, what, are, are, are what we're saying is that there's this world, this human world that operates according to its own rules and its own laws and its own things, and, it, and, and that's Caesar's world, and we should leave that alone, and God thinks that's great. And then there's this other world that's God's, yeah, which is this world where we obey Caesar, like dutiful little servants. I mean, don't you see that this is an ideology for tyranny? This, this is a way of trying to co-opt Christianity to make it actually serve the tyrants, rather than undo the tyrants. Let's just walk through
0: the passage. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. So it begins with the Pharisees. No, of course, this, this is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. And all three say that different groups come to Jesus. It's the Pharisees bringing the Herodians, or it's it scribes in the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But anyways, you pretty much get the Pharisees in every group. And right. and I think that's particularly important because the Pharisees are Often said to be opposed to Roman rule. Right. And that's just not the Uh case.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, well, let's get to the trial of Jesus and talk about whether or not they're opposed to the rule of Caesar. <laughs> as, yeah, as they're yeah. declaring, we have no king but, but Caesar. Caesar. We right. have no king but Caesar. It
0: uh, is a strange thing. And of course, there was like some mild opposition that they no, had. No, no,
1: They're opposed in
0: the way all tyrants are opposed to each other. Well, that's the thing. Is it's that, a competition for power. Josephus, who was that first century his Jewish historian, probably a Pharisee himself, mm-hmm. makes it very clear that when the romans first came into power they put the pharisees on top and after they were deposed by the romans they were then very upset with the romans yeah. this is exactly what you're saying yeah, that like, right. people who are vying for power always hate the people who have the power right now but this is the dynamic that we see when luke records that the pharisees themselves particularly went to jesus that they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the Roman governor. Right. You know, this is right okay, so they're saying. trying
1: to use the power of, of Caesar for their own ends. Right, exactly.
0: And they, they ask him this question of, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Mm-hmm. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. This is one of these uh, classic Greek idioms that, that we find where it literally it translates to, you do not receive anyone's face. I mean, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't have preference. You're not yeah, going sure, sure. to speak differently to anybody. You're just yeah. going to tell the truth, right. which is kind of ironic given what you have just said a few moments ago about Christ speaking directly, to you. perfectly to you, right? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but, but but I see their point still right, is that right. you're going to speak truly and of course, what does Christ call them but hypocrites? And hypocrites is usually not a negative word when we find it in Greek. It's it's actually uh, just a, a basic description for an actor because they were wearing these ridiculously large masks right. and they had to judge from underneath. That's the literal translation of the word, the judge underneath of hypocrite. And and Christ, is, is saying just this, you are wearing big masks. You are not showing your face truly. You're misrepresenting your own motives. That's that's how everything kind of comes together. And then he asks for a coin because Christ, of course, never has a coin on him. We find throughout this, the scriptures, probably not least because of the image, which is on it. Which is, which what is, which is
1: I guess, where we go in that Which sense. is where he asks. He, he
0: asks two questions. He says, what is the inscription and what is the image? And they only give him the answer to one, just yeah. to the image. They say, Caesar. They're referring to a particular tax. It comes out clearly in the Greek. They're certainly referring to a denarius. You have Lydia, the queen mother, who is deceased at this point, but she is represented as the goddess of pox. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The great peace that Rome itself delivers. And on the flip side, the other side of the coin, the front, the head side, you have Tiberius Caesar. That's what the Pharisees say, Caesar is, Mm -hmm. is the image on the coin. But underneath his head has this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, the son of God, the son of God. Given the Jewish tradition and its perennial decree not to worship false gods, Mm -hmm. not to make idols or have them on your person. This was absolutely political dynamite, what Christ is doing. Right. He himself calls himself the son of God. And if anything, it's saying nothing is Caesar's. But he says it in such a subtle and, and creative way that they could not catch him at it. Right. Words. I mean, that's
1: what I, I mean. I read the passage when he says, yeah. render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he's holding this coin. It's almost a, an ironic dismissive of Caesar. You know, it's almost like give him his worthless little idol. Like this, yeah. You're not
0: supposed to love money. Give Whatever. Away.
1: Yeah. This is not of God. Yeah. All that is true and good and just in the world is God's. And in fact, following right on the heels of the passage, he, he starts talking about what we owe God, doesn't he?
0: Right. Exactly. In Matthew, he gets right into the love of the Lord, your God, with all, all your, your heart, heart. With everything. Everything in you. So what are you, what is reserved for your Caesar? Mind, what is your Caesar's? Soul, your strength.
1: It's like the only thing that's left out is sin. Like what is Caesar's is sin. it to him like don't keep it that's the reading here right not that caesar's okay Mm. not that 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 i sanction his regime right why do people
0: want that the law that christ brings the divine law that christ brings the perfect correspondence to the natural law the eternal law he is the law instantiated he is the word made flesh right that does not correspond to any known human law it cannot for the human law that we create ourselves, right, apart from his grace, apart from his person, is a law that we have created distanced from, from him. God. Yeah, exactly. So we're, the, we're human the law, flourishing or, 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 or. The law or, that
1: Christ comes to fulfill leaves nothing behind. There's no remainder. Hmm. Right? Like all that we are as human beings are brought up into it and fulfilled within it. Yeah. All of it. We started out with anthropology talking in the very beginning what are we like we are social like we are linguistic we are rational we're political in our very nature that's what's being healed that's what's being brought up and fulfilled that's not being left alone like the grace and the truth that christ teaches isn't operating kind of like underneath
0: that christ is undoing that well, do you think there's maybe this is too theoretical but the ancient heresy of nestorianism where God didn't really become man. Right. He just appeared to have yeah. become man. Don't you think there's some correspondence to that heresy and this lie that Christ only came to redeem our mind and our souls and not every little nook and cranny, our fingers, our flesh, our livelihood, our politics, our sociology? Absolutely. Yeah, I do, I do
1: think so. And I think maybe that's a
0: good segue to, to continue
1: talking about the way law is fulfilled because it's fulfilled only through grace, right? Mm. So what is different? with the coming of Christ, one of the things that's different as far as law is concerned is that not only now are we taught the law, but now the grace that is necessary to become the virtuous people who fulfill the law is being poured out on us through Christ, right? And the way we understand that to happen in the church is through the sacraments, right. most perfectly. Yes, And that's different than the sacraments of the old law, right? Hmm. Because the sacraments of the old law symbolize, they show, they teach, but they don't, they're effect. not efficacious. They don't affect. They don't yeah. have the effect. Whereas after the incarnation, the law now is efficacious, right? So the sacrament which teaches, which instructs, which shows, which is symbolic, is simultaneously the assistance, the efficaciousness. That's where you're we talking about Nestorianism. It's actually real now, it's incarnate right? It's not just a symbol of God. It's not just God acting as if he were a bread. He in fact is. So if you look at like the Protestants, so Luther or Calvin thinks that the Sermon on the Mount is basically God doubling down. So like you couldn't obey the law in the Old Testament. Now I'm going to show you just how much you can't obey the law, because I'm (laughs) going to say that not only do you have to obey it out externally, but you have to have the correct dispositions, which you can't do because you're helplessly depraved. And so the purpose of that is to demoralize us to the point where we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. So like the Sermon on the Mount is not good news, but like really, really bad news. Wow. Right. (laughs) And then, and then that should lead eventually to our receiving of, of mercy directly, unilaterally. Right. Wow. Okay. Thomas has the total inverted reading of this because what's happening in the reason why the Sermon on the Mount isn't making things harder. Is because the grace that assists in becoming the virtuous person, in not hating, not merely not murdering, is on offer. We now have it, right? So we can accept it and act in it and become someone who fulfills the law through Christ. I mean, I hope we could start to see how this would undo the regimes of the world. When the law becomes internalized, the external law loses power. The powers of the world rely entirely
0: on the exterior law, on violence, force. That's maybe a place where we can start to wind down because that is a a whole another beast. When we look around at modern America, the first thing that most of us think in a a more of a conservative camp is we're free. We're free. And I think even in both a a democratic and a Republican circle, people would say that's, that is what America promises is freedom. And that's what, that's what we deliver. It's a good life and freedom. When we would hear that, America is coercive or it's violent. That's a, that's a uh, big conversation. That's a big conversation. And it's something that we probably would, would fuss at a little bit first before yeah. understanding w- what you actually mean by that. Because it's quite a dynamic statement. Yeah. I mean, just to give a little bit about it would be... Please. Who's
1: more free? A two-year-old. And this is a life experience for my own. A two-year-old <laughs> sitting at a keyboard on a piano, banging away, doing whatever they want. Right? Like there are no rules. They can hit whatever key they want. They're banging away on the keyboard. (laughs) Or the concert pianist who sits down at the keyboard.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? Who has more freedom? Because the concert pianist, what can he do? He can do whatever he wants on the keyboard. Right? He can bang. He can He can bang if he wants. Or he could play Beethoven. Or he can compose a new song. Why? Because the laws of the piano that he's been trained into through his childhood. So how did he get there? He started out as a two-year-old. He was trained by a master. He was disciplined. It was painful. That's the law. It does inhibit his freedom, right? Like when you first set a a four-year-old down for piano lessons or a five-year-old, and that first time the piano teacher is telling them they can't just bang on the keyboard, that is restricting them, right? But as they become the master of the piano, And they develop the habits, or here we're talking about like virtues basically, right? Of understanding the piano as an instrument, understanding what it can do, and then understanding music. They actually gain freedom. And I don't just mean submission. There's people who are really fundamentally authoritarian who think that, oh, you have freedom from the law when you submit to the law, Mm. right? And so you just make the the will of the lawgiver your own will, and then you're perfectly free, which is the freedom of a slave right, of a slave who's just submitted completely. That's not the freedom that's on offer here. The freedom on offer is the knowledge of reality, the knowledge of music, the truth, to know it and to desire the good, to, to see it and to have an appetite for beauty so that your scope of action actually increases, right? Your free scope, your creative scope, your creative action. You can sit down at the keyboard and play Beethoven. You can sit down on the keyboard and write a new song. You're more free even in the way that the liberals want you to be free, which is to be able to do whatever you want. The concert pianist can do whatever he Mm -hmm. wants better than the two-year-old.
0: And that's what I think we are trying to figure out with post-liberal thought is just what... Are all the beautiful things that we're missing right you know uh so this is the way the but, truth sets you free though right yeah but it gives us an idea and it kind of sets our interest or props up our, our interest and in what is it that we're missing is there more to the christian life than just trying to be kind to our to our neighbors and, and feed the poor in our our city because that's that's an awful lot but what else is there how much are we missing maybe that's a place we can and for this podcast. And, okay, good. And pick up for uh, some further s- insights for the next one. All right, great. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You. This has been the Catholic Social Difference with Andrew Willard Jones. To join in, write us a letter on our website or talk with us on Twitter. But most importantly, do pray for the conversion of your community to the truth of Catholic social doctrine.